Raiden Kazoon's Yelwa Zredna Nasi Terpa Nisderb of Marf Ryu Rel Sir Keith Thud Lif Zish Kabneb Smara Yam Smaratamost Sub Ruan Ye Yak Loif Ye Ermla Parol Kyal Il Tikazga Tsonla Kal ish tn zad tab nizak yamzish liats ni kab muk ut niag zi kyalui mugtav zundog tag via karstel. Today's episode of Lost in Twin Peaks wraps up my coverage of season one, episode three, aka Traces to Nowhere, aka episode two, since it's the second regular episode after the pilot also known as the Red Room episode. In this, I'm going to discuss, uh, well, really just read uh, reactions to the episode, both from fans and from critics, uh, and also from my own archive. I've written quite a bit about this in the past, and uh, look forward to sharing that, and uh, encouraging you to go read more in the links if you if you want more of it, because I usually read just a sample here. And then we have a Shape of the Show uh, section, the Log Lady intro, a few little samples of some things that I or other people have written about the show that talk about maybe the overall structure, but nothing particularly spoilery. And then we end, as always, with the first minute of the next episode. So you can probably hang in there if you haven't seen it yet. There's nothing... Too spoilery, but fair warning. This was a very well-received episode for obvious reasons, and it seems like it was probably the first one that critics had to watch as it aired, rather than in advance. There's references to episode one in articles about the pilot before the show had premiered, so I guess they gave both of those episodes to critics to watch to give them a sense of how the show was going to proceed, but they held this one up their sleeve, and so everybody was blown away by it. But of course, some had already seen the dream sequence, thanks to copies of the alternate ending that were in circulation, on videotape and such. Mark Harris for Entertainment Weekly actually wrote an article before the pilot about the alternate ending, and he noted it rivals Lynch's eeriest, most alienating work. A spokesman for the show says it's unlikely to air. Indeed, it's hard to imagine how the series could incorporate it, except possibly as a dream sequence. So either Harris was pretty prescient there, or he had a tip-off. Here's a couple excerpts I'd like to read from articles that came out in the week after this episode. Uh, some of them don't necessarily refer to the episode. They were probably written beforehand, but this is the timing in which they came out. One is from Adolescent Eye, an article by Jonathan Rosenbaum for the Chicago Reader, uh, published April 20th, 1990. This is a great article to read in general. Uh, the, the place I found it no longer has it. I'll see if I can find a version and put it in the uh, show notes if possible. But it's worth reading in full because Rosenbaum is a great movie critic, one of the great movie critics, you know, really of all time. Very idiosyncratic, has a unique point of view, and has often been pretty critical of Lynch. I think he's softened in more recent years. He wrote about how he loved Inland Empire and stuff, which is very much a Rosenbaum thing for Inland Empire to be one that turns him around. I think he liked Mulholland Drive as well, but he was pretty skeptical of him early in his career. He even compared Lynch. Uh, in a weird way of, of being this sort of like American entre entrepreneurial figure, uh, uh, the artist as entrepreneur who compared him to like Walt Disney and Hugh Hefner, which is sort of strange. But uh, here's what he, uh, he, he wrote. Here's a couple 
quick excerpts from this article. Lynch's auteurist identity is mainly going to proceed neither with nor through the plot, but at oblique angles to it. This is pretty much the pattern that he follows throughout the pilot, carving out little pockets in the mechanical plot and creating shapely formalist designs inside them. Where these designs differ most from those in previous pictures is in his willingness to adapt them to the purely narrative dictates of the serial form. If I've singled out Terence Rafferty for attack, it's only because his review of the series pilot expressed the desire to liberate Twin Peaks from its ideology even more nakedly than the other forms of hype I've encountered. There's something wistfully, desperately, and quintessentially American, as well as postmodernist, about collapsing a Marxist anarchist devoted to the overthrow of bourgeois complacency, and, initially, civilization itself, into a formalist with no interest whatever in altering the status quo. And in that last comparison, he's referring to Luis Bunuel, the Spanish filmmaker, who that critic that he's referencing uh, whose review I think I shared as part of the pilot media response, uh, he, he compared Lynch to Bunuel, and Rosenbaum is pointing out they have vastly different uh, ideologies, which he feels are reflected in their aesthetics. Maybe an arguable point, but an interesting one. Another uh, piece that I wanted to share is from the Boston Globe on April 26th, 1990. So this was written the day, or published the day that the next episode was going to air, but before it did, called Postmodern Gothic, A Whacked-Out World in Twin Peaks, USA, by Gail Caldwell. And again, these are excerpts from a longer piece. This who-me-ism only perpetuates the weirdness, for the more Lynch explains what a regular guy he is, the stranger he seems. But his very lack of self-consciousness, of either deliberate method or intellectual distance, is at the core of what makes his work so extraordinary, so chilling, hip-goofy at the once. His internal visions explode on the screen with the power of uncensored Rorschachs, and he seems as blithely uninterested in their hidden or analytical design as a mesmerized patient staring at an inkblot. But Lars' chalky presence is a little too dead lovely for my taste, and the plastic shroud around her face looks enough like a bridal veil to unsettle the most jaded viewer. The shot of the other tortured girl on the railroad trestle is so close to Brian De Palma's casualties of war, which certainly crossed the line, that it's hard to assume it was coincidental. Writing more than 30 years ago about the grotesque in fiction, Flannery O'Connor addressed the shadowy passage an artist has to travel, this descent into himself that gives rise to the work. It will be a descent through the darkness of the familiar, she wrote, into a world where, like the blind man cured in the Gospels, he sees men as if they were trees, but walking. In David Lynch's familiar world, those Douglas firs keep marching forward, circling the beast within. So that's some of the critics in, in response to the show, more to the pilot, but, you know, in the wake of episode two. And of course, this particular episode is hugely popular with fans, especially with current younger fans. This tends to be the one that wins them over, even if they aren't completely sold on the pilot or the following one. And that was pretty much true for me. I mean, I saw it before I saw the pilot, but uh, this was the one that, that really hit me. At the time, it was a little too weird for some viewers, but among those who were already really hooked, it often pulled them in even deeper. Mark Frost recalls playing golf with a businessman who seemed really uptight uh, right around the time this episode aired. And But when Frost mentioned that he produced Twin Peaks, the golfer said, oh, Twin Peaks. And he dropped his golf club and suddenly started doing the little man's, the, the, the little guy's dance from the red room right there on the green. So that told Frost that this thing was really taking off. 
at the time on the uh, Usenet, the sort of proto-internet, uh, I guess technically it was still the internet, but a very different form in uh, 1990, the Twin Peaks board was uh, really starting to get going. Tom Neff wrote on April 20th, 1990, in res uh, first he quoted another user named David M. Baggett, who wrote, the speech was not simply played backwards. If you go back and listen again, you'll see or hear that you can still make out the words. If each word had just been played backwards, it would sound like complete gibberish. It sounds like they took each word and randomly reversed segments here and there. Not too many, though. And Tom Neff responds, no. What you do is, A, have each actor record all his or her lines normally. B, play them back reversed. Sounds like gibberish. C, have each actor learn that gibberish by heart, i.e. learn to make the right mouth noises to imitate his or her backwards speech. D, record that. E, Play the result in reverse. The result is garbled, squishy-sounding speech. As a side effect, a lot of the physical action in the dream sequence, including, I suspect, the dancing, was reverse-filmed. The shots of Cooper were normal. You'll notice how sick and sad and old and deflated Cooper looked in the dream sequence, as though they had given his face a layer of bisquick batter. That's eraserhead stuff, boys and girls, and this sequence was the most horrifically pure bit of Lynch wrongness I have seen since Eraserhead. He seems to have a hotline to the essence of nightmare. There are really two special Lynch modes, one where you say, Gah, tee you are a sick pup, mister, and one where you say, in a very small voice, Oh, Oh no, stop that. So that's Tom's comment. I like that one. In 2014, on the Dugpa Twin Peaks fan forum, I posted a series of questions about various moments or turning points in Twin Peaks, and I got a lot of great responses. When I asked about the Red Room dream in episode two, here's what I heard back. The user who called himself Audrey Horn wrote, in the character of their younger self, Okay, this show is great. Again, thank God I recorded and kept these. Already watching the pilot and second episode at least five times. Have made friends watching them. I've made my friends watch them. Have a, I have a notebook with notes. This episode is amazing. There's a whorehouse? Cooper throwing rocks? The spooky rich girl is doing another dance? Ha! Lucy sticking her tongue out at the new FBI jerk. Love her the most. Wait, what the hell is this dream? Episode over, mind blown. This show just jumped to another level. Rewatch the dream again and again. Tons of notes in my pad. Hurry up next week. Gabriel responded, The papers had mentioned a backwards talking dwarf. I'd assumed it would be some crazy person showing up in the RR. The sequence was really odd and yet funny. I wasn't sure where it would lead. A lot of it was simply strange words and myth building that wouldn't make sense until later on. I should note that uh, Gabriel's from the UK, so they didn't get the series until six months later, which is why uh, newspapers would have mentioned the dwarf. Rami Airola responded, I was already horrified by the weird shaking this weird person was doing, and when he turned around, looked very weird and sounded even more weird, I was absolutely terrified, but also very interested in it. I had already a habit of watching horror movies. I was both terrified and fascinated about all kinds of scary stories. I think I was even somewhat traumatized by the scene, as for years and years I saw nightmares about the midget, and very often when I closed my eyes, I was too scared to open them again, because I was afraid that the midget would suddenly be right in front of my face, looking and sounding all weird. Even though I was so young, I always knew that movies are just movies and they are not real, but at nights, the mind goes to weird places. And besides, Michael J. Anderson wasn't acting his weird appearance because that was all him. That was how he really looked like, so in theory it could have been possible that he would have appeared in my room some night, and man, I thought that was scary as hell. Ross responded, I remember this pretty vividly as well. I remember turning off the TV after the episode ended and just thinking, wow, definitely the oddest, weirdest thing I had ever seen, but so fascinating. 
I think when some people go back and revisit the show, they're surprised at how early that came in the run of the show, and it definitely got people talking. They might have lost some viewers, but gained more. Even if a lot of people were saying, WTF, it sure had them talking. Personally, I loved the idea that it was some kind of code, and the sequence with Bob and Mike was scary, and since I have always been a horror fan, I love those aspects of the show. It was also really cool seeing Laura. Bob One responded, The dream itself made me something like, oh, how cool, without giving it any deeper thought. However, Cooper's revelation of, I know who killed, was a real shock. Yeager Dazel responded, My only visual exposure to Twin Peaks prior to watching was a still shot from the Red Room. When the scene came up, my attention was glued. Loved every aspect of it and loved everything involving it after. Hooded Matt responded, Being told that there is a dwarf who talks backwards and experiencing it are two entirely different things. I was not prepared for the beautiful absurdity that is the dream sequence. Okay, on that note, this is what I personally wrote down in that thread about my own first viewing. This scene sealed the deal. I knew this was going to be my favorite series and an unforgettable experience. But I also remember the opening of the episode with the entire Horn clan sitting around the table munching on Brie and Baguette, or about to anyways. This was visually the most interesting thing I'd seen yet on the show, and when Directed by David Lynch appeared on the screen, I was not surprised. This started something of a game for me when I watched the full series. I would always try to guess if Lynch was directing before the final credit came up. This game would not resume for two years as I stopped my initial viewing at episode two. Not only was the pilot unavailable at this time, season two hadn't yet been released on DVD, so I knew I didn't want to wait in further, only to get frustrated when I had to stop prematurely. The Gold Box came out a year later, but for some reason I didn't pick up with the series until 08. Oddly enough, as I realized later, looking at my Netflix account, I rented the pilot two years to the day after I had first started watching the series. Spooky. And now I'd like to read and uh, share some of my previous writing about this episode that I think uh, touches on things I haven't talked about yet and presents my perspective at this time in an interesting way, hopefully. From 2008, my episode guide, second, uh, third time ever watching this episode because I'd seen it once years earlier and then again when I watched the full series uh, and then I returned to it to write, uh, to write up each episode and I said, there are examples throughout the next 45 minutes. Within almost every scene, Lynch finds a point of interest and a center from which his camera can operate and his characters interact. When Bobby and Mike go into the woods for a drug trade with Leo Johnson, everything is illuminated by flashlight, including Leo's face in an effect both cheesy and creepy. Leo's speech patterns complement the visual scheme by heightening both his ridiculous and intimidating qualities. Meanwhile, as James and Donna whisper and then make out on Donna's couch, Lynch alternates between extreme close-ups, wallowing in the pulpy but romantic tones of teenage puppy love, before cutting away to an ominous grandfather clock to bookend the sequences. And before the show's big set piece, we catch up with the Palmers as Leland's sanity appears to falter for the first time. He places a cheerful, snappy record on the turntable and starts dancing with Laura's framed portrait. Lynch holds on him as Mrs. Palmer rushes in, tries to pull the picture away, and ends up smashing it, cutting Leland's hands with the glass shards. Leland wipes the blood from his hands on the immaculate portrait and begins to weep. In all these scenes, we have an uneasy but compelling balance between camp and sincerity. The previous episode achieved this balance between scenes, while Lynch finds the equilibrium within each scene. He manages to make the show both campy and sincere at the same time. Occasionally, he fluctuates from moment to moment in a sequence. Observe Shelley Johnson, bruised from the previous night's beating by her husband, as she shuts off the over-the-top soap opera Invitation to Love, 
disgusted by its romantic fantasy. Then secret lover Bobby barges in, caresses her face, and soothes her with language straight out of a soap opera. In fact, the dialogue bears a remarkable similarity to the faux melodrama that Betty auditions for in Mulholland Drive. If he finds out about us, he'll kill us both, Shelley coos, as Bobby kisses her. In 2014, I published a retrospective of all of Lynch's works called The Eye of the Duck, and in that I included all the episodes he directed of Twin Peaks. So here was my entry on this particular episode in that uh, full essay retrospective. For episode two, I wrote, Take, for example, the high-angle wide shot of the Horn family's wacky dinner, the flashlight beam in the dark woods, a close-up of greasy hands on a doorknob, or a rising crane shot of a teenage girl dancing dreamily. Compare these touches to the previous installment, the first regular hour-long episode of the series, directed by Lynch's editor, Dwayne Dunham, a very enjoyable, if routine, assembly of close-ups, as the actors deliver memorable one-liners and convey plot points. At its best, and sometimes even not at its best, Twin Peaks brought a sense of the cinematic moment, pregnant with feeling and suggestion, to the straightforward televisual drama comedy. Some viewers checked out at this point, dismayed by the turn from atmospheric police procedural to wandering surrealism. But for those who stayed, this was what they wanted more of. This is also one of the most consistently funny episodes, but with an air of relaxed amusement rather than the strained silliness of the late second season. There are hints of darkness, tantalizing mystery clues, and affectionately intense adolescent romances, but every scene is fun. Lynch has created possibly the most consistently entertaining Peaks episode of them all. In 2015, for Tumblr, I ranked all of the episodes. I'll save the ranking for uh, the shape of the show so that, you know, in case you don't want to know my sense of the overall shape of the show, you won't have to. But I'll read an excerpt from the description I wrote for this episode. When I first heard about Twin Peaks, I think the only thing I knew was there is a dwarf who talks backwards. I pictured a bearded gnome in a cave in the forest, delivering mysterious and medieval-sounding messages in code. Well... Not quite. And when I finally saw this scene, I knew I was going to love Twin Peaks, and also that I would have absolutely no idea what to expect from it, which only made me love it more. As most people reading this will know, the scene was originally an alternate ending to the pilot, but it works so much better in episode 2's context. Not only because Lynch slices and dices the lengthy hospital sequence into a lean, efficient, mind-fucking machine, but because, rather perversely, the strangeness of the Red Room somehow seems stranger when it isn't just dropped in out of nowhere like a goof-off non-sequitur. That said, one advantage to seeing it as the end of the pilot is realizing how perfectly it serves as a zany parody of the whole mystery genre. Questions posed, clues offered, a victim whose secret is revealed to the detective. But the premise and the execution of this sleuthing is so absurd that these tried-and-true conventions dissolve into pure surrealism. Had the show never gone forward, had the pilot ended on this note, this would have been the perfect Lynchian mockery of what we expect from a murder mystery, but can never quite get in real life. In 2016, I participated in a Reddit rewatch and later released this uh, material on my site as the first time viewer companion, where I discuss each episode without spoilers. It's not like an extensive commentary, usually just a short comment, uh, whatever came to mind as I was watching the episode again. So here is a sample from that entry on episode, on uh, this episode. Wow, what an episode. There's no piece of Twin Peaks more archetypal, and there's probably no episode I've seen more times, yet each time seems just as fresh. It's such an overload of good stuff. This could be the, the one where they introduce One-Eyed Jacks, or 
the one where they introduce Albert, or the one where Audrey dances in the diner, or the one where Cooper throws rocks at the bottles, but instead it's all of the above and so much more. I mean, to have all of that and then throw in the Red Room Dream, maybe the most iconic imagery of Lynch's whole career? Wow. If Bob's brief appearance in the previous episode was the first moment that hooked me, this was the episode to really hook me as a whole. I saw both before the pilot. After this, I stopped to wait until I could see the whole thing properly from the beginning. But even if I hadn't, I think that might still be true. The pilot is a thing of polished beauty, efficient and evocative, but it doesn't quite connect with me the way this one does. Here is where you can really see Lynch lifting off into outer space. It's amazing how different the same sets and actors look in his hands, like a master painter who sees things that no one else does in their angles and decorations, or expressions and gestures. Lynch crafts a completely different aura from the same material. And uh, yeah, it, one thing that does strike me reading that, I, I mentioned that there's probably no episode I've seen more times. The reason for that is uh, that there was a long period where I didn't watch Twin Peaks at all from 2008 to 2015, after I'd watched it the first couple times. And then I was writing about other things for the site. I didn't see the film at all during that time. The only time I watched Twin Peaks was I went to a video store that was closing down in uh, Malden, where I lived in 2009, I think, or 2010, around that time. And they were selling off all their old videos from the 90s. One of them was just a standalone VHS tape of uh, this episode. So I bought it for a few bucks and uh, watched it during that time. And it was like the only time I watched Twin Peaks during that whole period. And it was so in isolation, so it's just interesting to consider. But this is an episode that really stands on its own. Like if you were to show somebody one episode of Twin Peaks, it would probably be this one. I don't think that's uh, too much of a spoiler to say. Like I'm not saying this is the best or whatever. Just this is, I actually, I showed some friends the pilot once and they didn't seem that taken with it. So I was like, okay, they're not going to watch Twin Peaks. I was like, I got to show you one more thing before we end your toe dipping into Twin Peaks. And uh, I put on the Red Room scene from this. And they were like, what the hell? I was like, well, you have to see it. If, if you're going to experiment with Twin Peaks, you have to at least get to this scene. Okay, now I'm going to move on to the shape of the show. I'm not going to give away any big plot details, but I am going to talk about things like the overall shape of the show, quality episodes versus, you know, if it dips at all and this and that. I'm also going to talk about the Log Lady introductions, which were recorded years later uh, by Lynch after the show was completed. Uh, if there's a next time preview for the next episode, I'll discuss that, uh, you know, what, where they show clips from the next episode at the end of the show and just things like that thing, things that kind of give you a broader sense of where the show's headed and, and stuff like that. I'll include speculation in here. No plot spoilers. First up, the way that I ranked this episode was number three. So I like this one so much. There's only two episodes coming up that I would rank higher in the remaining 27. There's no next time preview, uh, at least not on the disc for this episode, so they don't preview uh, episode three. For the Log Lady intro, she talks a lot about ideas. That's kind of her emphasis. She says, some ideas can arrive in the form of a dream. I can say it again. Some ideas can arrive in the form of a dream. So this touches on not only Cooper's two dream ideas, both the Tibetan method and who killed Laura Palmer, but also Lynch's inspiration for the dream, which arrived in the form of a dream. That's, that's you know, 
kind of how this idea took form and was eventually used on the show, but didn't actually arrive through a dream. Lynch supposedly doesn't have, he says he doesn't dream that much or take that much inspiration from dreams. It's all like daydreams and thoughts sort of occurring to him in day-to-day life. From my uh, comment where I reacted to episode two, uh, there was an additional uh, bit of info that I didn't want to put there, so I'll put it here instead. It says, I said, uh, talking about you know how it would play a game, trying to figure out if an episode was directed by Lynch, because the, the director's credit occurs usually about a minute in an episode. So you have a minute of footage to assess. Does this seem like something Lynch would do? I said, usually it wasn't that difficult to determine, but I remember being surprised when his name appeared on episode nine. The fairly low-key opening didn't strike me as Lynchian at the time. And also when his name didn't come up after the Eraserhead-esque shot of opening shot of Todd Holland's episode 11. Another thing I wanted to say for, this, for the semi-spoiler section is that uh, I watched the Killer's Reveal episode of Twin Peaks six years to the day before the entire Mystery Blu-ray Ray was released. So I was talking about how it was weird that I watched the I started watching Twin Peaks again two years to the day I rented the disc from Netflix after I had first rented it by total coincidence. And I just thought this was another random weird coincidence that I got to see the missing pieces for the first time exactly six years after the night that I must have watched the uh, Killer's Reveal because I received the disc on like the day on that day and I'm sure I watched it right away. Here is where the only mild spoilers begin in the sense that we will be discussing what's on screen in the next episode although I guess spoiler about a spoiler there's nothing too crazy happening here that you wouldn't necessarily want to know so it could serve as an appetizer to the episode if you haven't watched it yet but you make that call to set the mood let's listen to the first minute of the episode when we fade back up after a commercial break following the opening credit sequence and oddly enough the music and waterfall footage just continue albeit with a slightly different shot and arrangement I'll be heading to the sheriff's after breakfast. From there, we'll be going on to Laura Palmer's funeral. The first thing we see is the Great Northern Hotel perched atop its cliff, a blue sky behind it with a tinge of warm light, while the hotel itself and part of the cliff are bathed in a reddish early morning glow. The other part is covered in shadow as the sun is still low in the sky. We pan across and tilt down, screen right, to catch the waterfall cascading in what appears to be slow motion, given the speed of the water and also a slight jerkiness to the transition between frames, suggesting that this process was applied in post-production to footage that had been shot normally, rather than in camera so that more frames would have been exposed. That's a technical detail you can sort of notice if you see a slow motion shot and it doesn't look that smooth. 
The view eventually settles on the magnificent bottom of the falls, where the water reaches the river below and a thick mist hovers above the surface. This shot dissolves slowly into Audrey Horn in medium close-up, leaning against a column inside the Great Northern, decorated as a totem pole. She is wearing a somewhat low-cut red blouse with ruffles around the neckline and with braids in her hair holding back one side of her curls more than the other. Her eyes are closed, and she is gently rocking back and forth against the column, eventually breathing deeply and opening her eyes to look around in front of her with a faint smile. As if sensing someone before she can hear them, there is a very faint sound of footsteps over the din of the breakfast crowd off-screen. Audrey begins turning her head and rolling her body in tandem to catch a view of Cooper turning the corner and walking down the hallway that was behind her. We hear Cooper's voice, as if closer than he is, before tracking across Audrey's head and shifting focus, briefly centering Audrey's soft-focused head, turned around and still blocking our view as the camera tracks, to catch Cooper just as he turns into the hallway. The guest credits, which pause when we reach the bottom of the falls so that we could see Audrey unobstructed, resume as she turns her head and continue as Cooper walks towards us. The small tracking movement only ends when Audrey is off screen and the hallway is centered in the frame, wooden columns and small lights designed like candles flanking the corridor. Cooper walks to our right side of the hallway, slightly off-center, his legs and torso reflected in the shiny wooden floor beneath him. As Cooper clicks off the tape recorder and returns it to his jacket pocket, a hotel employee walks across the perpendicular hallway from which Cooper came, from the opposite direction, emphasizing the flower-designed wallpaper in the background that offsets the otherwise all-wooden interior. Cooper places his hands in his pocket, before we cut back to Audrey in front of her column, still leaning to the side and craning her neck to watch Cooper, before she rotates back to her original position. Her faint, dreamy smile is gone, replaced by a big, hungry grin. Our minute ends. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies, there's much more both in the archive and uh, coming out month to month. <laughs>